Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to AEI's webinar, The Disinformation Pandemic. Uh, we're going to talk today about Russian and Chinese efforts to shape the information environment in the U.S. Uh, and the world, um, and the ways in which the uh, Chinese and Russian approaches to disinformation uh, appear to be converging in the midst of this crisis. I'm Fred Kagan. I'm the director of the Critical Threats Project here at the American Enterprise Institute. And with me today to discuss this are Dan Blumenthal, the director of Asian Studies in the Foreign and Defense Policy Department at AEI, Zach Cooper, research fellow at AEI in uh, China Studies, and Natalia Bugayova, who is the Russia team lead at the Institute for the Study of War. I want to flag up front before we begin one of the interesting characteristics of the information operations and the information environment that we're seeing today. As the Russians and the Chinese are working very aggressively to shape the way Americans and Europeans and others in the world understand what is going on and, think, and how to think about it, they are simultaneously imposing restrictions on the information available to their own citizens of unprecedented proportions. So they have created an enormous asymmetry between the information spaces in the areas that they control and the information space in the area in which we live. And it's important as we think about how they are engaging in these disinformation operations to understand that asymmetry and the way that it gives them opportunities, but may potentially also create vulnerabilities and problems for them that they're going to have to deal with. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dan to start talking to us about China. Thank you very much, Fred. So Fred, um, because my colleague Zach has been really following the difference, how China changed its disinformation and propaganda strategy and, and how it's converging more with the Russian approach, I thought what I might do in just a few minutes is talk about what didn't change, uh, China's, China's normal approach and how it actually has played out in COVID-19. So one thing I think that many, many people missed, as you alluded to, is how much of China's propaganda and disinformation efforts mm -hmm. begin at home and is targeted to the Chinese people themselves. Because China is so enmeshed in world affairs, that by itself has an effect of propagating misinformation abroad. So here's what I mean. Let's just take COVID-19, for example. So at the beginning of the crisis, there wasn't anything particularly new about the way the Chinese approached information. As the crisis unfolded in December, when Wuhan officials clearly already knew there was a real problem on their hands, as did central CCP authorities, they began to censor relevant information uh, about the disease and to punish people seeking to 
tell the truth about the information. So that's the famous cases of Dr. I and Dr. Lee. But it wasn't just that those two were punished when they decided to report on WeChat groups, on social media groups, that there was a new novel SARS, very infectious disease on their hands. The notification from the Public Security Bureau in Wuhan was to everyone on the internet that if you discuss and deviate from the party line on anything having to do with the virus in Wuhan, you will be detained and punished, and many, many people are. So disinformation starts at home. Because of that, the United States and the rest of the world was, was not getting good information about the virus. It costing everyone time, a lot of time and eventually lives um, because of the, the CCP sensors went into overdrive and continue to be in overdrive today. So the story in the West, although a bit muddled, is that the Chinese were slow to react, but since then have did the, quote, perfect lockdown and are have the virus behind them and so forth. Nothing could be further than the truth. When reporters went down, independent reporters and other very brave people in China went down into Wuhan during the lockdown, what they saw was a complete and total humanitarian disaster. The sensors went back into overdrive at that point. Okay, it, not only did the sensors go into overdrive at that point, and by the way, this is all normal behavior of the CCP because the CCP relies upon censorship and avoiding embarrassment and a party line that everything is fine and they're fighting the disaster. Uh, and of course, that it's always, quote, foreign hostile forces that are responsible for the Chinese people's suffering. All of this is, is just lit up now in Chinese uh, internal propaganda and in Chinese um, censorship activities. But of course, they also started to destroy scientific information as well. And the central authorities in China now control anything that is put up by scientists uh, that would have anything to do with a cure or uh, trace of the origins of the disease. Okay, so why does that matter to us? This is normal Chinese behavior. The problem with normal Chinese behavior is China's not North Korea. It's not isolated. It's enmeshed in the international system. So China's political pathologies are now exported abroad. So even if China never engaged in the massive disinformation campaign aimed at us externally that Zach will talk about, we would still have a, basically a whole set of misinformation, disinformation that we would just naturally and inadvertently repeat in our newspapers about the coronavirus. My point in all that obviously is China's internal censorship, its crushing of information, its disappearances, its normal modes of behavior during any crisis or even not during a crisis has a huge effect on the rest of the world nowadays. It, it, it just what goes on in China cannot stay in China. Next, I would just say, okay, what else is normal Chinese activities? So normal Chinese activities in the external propaganda world has usually been very different from the Russians in the sense that, A, they have a lot more money. They've bought up a lot more media companies throughout the world and set up their own Chinese language or Arabic language or African, you know, different African languages to propagate a positive Chinese line, which is 
China is going to be the global leader in the world. It is going to do so in a way that's much more gentle and harmonious than, uh, than the United States has been. It'll be a much more benign hegemon. Uh, everyone has to sign up to new language the Chinese are using. We all have to sign up to a community of common destiny in, in Chinese terms, which is different than the U.S. built world order. That's normal, uh, everyday Chinese influence campaigns, positive themes about what the CCP is up to. You can pick up a people's daily uh, filler inside a U.S. Um, newspaper and see those themes uh, about how well China is doing, how it's a different so- sort of dominant uh, player. Uh, this is all to push China's agenda of becoming a global leader, of displacing the United States, positively themed. Uh, you'll see lots of terms like harmonious, lots of themes like more fair, non, non-aggressive, and so on. And then the other thing that Chinese do in terms of propagating that theme, that they are a friendlier hegemon, a, they'll be a friendlier dominant player, a more effective one. We all know, we've all heard about the Beijing model, of course, which is the Chinese propagate through through their different propaganda organs externally, um, you know, which is supposed to be more efficient than democracies, supposed to be more um, benign, uh, faster growth, uh, and so on. L- let me just end by saying, so this is obviously disinformation, just it's just not true. The Beijing model doesn't work in China, as we've just seen with the COVID-19 virus. It's actually caused more uh, uh, suffering. So, but, but this is the normal way China does business that, in terms of propaganda and disinformation. I would say, just to sum up, that the key way ch- that China has in the past propagated disinformation is by blocking good information. So let me just end by, 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 by pointing to one more sort of normal course of business for China, and that is using their market power to block themes they don't like. So you could say, okay, well, what does the National Basketball Association, for example, have to do with disinformation? Well, if all of a sudden China is threatening a major U.S. cultural icon with not getting market access, this is all before COVID, then all of a sudden, there are all kinds of incentives inside the United States to about Hong Kong, about all sorts of other issues. You get willing participants because, because the Chinese are willing to throw their market power. Also very different than the Russians. So let me end there. Uh, we can go, I hope we get into question and answers. Uh, uh, there's a lot more to this, but I again would say the, the biggest cause up to this point of Chinese disinformation, misinformation is what they block and distort at home. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. I, I think it's an incredibly important point um, that's worth bringing home because it, China, it relates to China more than to other countries because it's so large and so powerful. But the disinformation, the notion that disinformation begins at home and that disinformation that originates in one country targeted at its own people, including control of information aimed at its own people, doesn't stay there. Uh, in, our, in our global information space, uh, when one country begins manipulating its own information environment, it tends to have effects on the global information environment and on us. Uh, so frequently unintentional effects, I think, although in China's case, probably also intentional. So th- it's a really, really important point um, to bring home. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Zach, talk to us about uh, what's, what's new. 
Well, thank you so much, Fred. It's great to get a chance to talk about this subject. And I just want to build on the fantastic comments that Dan made and maybe lead into a little bit of what Natalia is going to talk about. So as Dan said, you know, traditionally what we've seen from Beijing is positive messages about China. That has typically been the key element in their propaganda campaign. So if you pick up a China Daily insert, it says lots of good things about how great the Communist Party leadership has been and how fantastic Chinese growth has been. Um, it has not tended to drag down other countries or other systems the way the Russians have. And what we're seeing now is a, is a pretty rapid change in that. We have, we have two cases at least. Uh, the first is going back last fall to Hong Kong, just as Dan was talking about. We started seeing a different narrative. And the first time that the Chinese have actually shifted towards using social media to go after in a negative way a uh, target within the United States. So there was a, an orchestrated social media campaign that went after Hong Kong uh, supporters within the United States. And that has now been followed up with another campaign, obviously in the last few months to spread disinformation around the pandemic. And what we've seen is uh, a couple of propagation uh, efforts, not led by some random part of the party or some random uh, group in China, but in fact led directly by China's foreign ministry. And in fact, by the spokespeople for China's foreign ministry. And this is a real change. Uh, this has been uh, pushed out now by multiple embassies worldwide. Uh, I think at last count, it was something like 15 or 17 ambassadors that have tweeted out these uh, fake uh, lines about where the virus came from. Some of those lines have attributed it to a US Army athletic team that went to Wuhan and said that it was intentionally them that brought the virus to Wuhan. Others have suggested that in fact, the virus was spreading back in the fall, either in the United States or Italy. But this is an effort to just tear down truth in the West. And this is not something we have typically seen from China, specifically not directed against the United States. Uh, and so this is an absolutely a, a major change in my view. And I think it reflects the deep concern that leaders in Beijing have about their inability to control the early days of the coronavirus. And as Dan was saying, you go back and look at what happened in December and January, it was clearly mishandled and it undermines the Communist Party's core logic for remaining in power. Just the last few days, we've seen stories suggesting that the United States uh, has been under some pressure from abroad, right, to speak differently about how it talks about COVID, that uh, the Europeans had an assessment of disinformation that the Chinese weighed in on and tried to block. And so this has been a, uh, a sort of global campaign. And in the last uh, just 48 hours, the Australian government has come under substantial pressure from Beijing to try and back off from launching an international investigation of where the virus came from and how it's been propagated. So this is an effort uh, launched by the foreign ministry uh, against uh, governments in democratic countries uh, all over the world. And this is a just a major change, and I, as I said. And I think to lead into what Natalia is gonna talk about, it, it resembles much something much more like what we've seen traditionally from the Russians, which is efforts to uh, sort of create questions about whether truth really exists. You know, it's impossible to know where the virus came from. Uh, this is not the old stodgy Chinese propaganda that we're used to. 
In fact, now Xinhua has been putting out a minute and a half long video, which is sort of like a cartoon. It's, it's catchy, it's exciting. It's very different than what we typically see from the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda organs as they operate in the West. Uh, so why don't I leave it there and really look forward to the discussion after we hear from Natalia. Thanks, Zach. Um, I appreciate that. Let's, uh, let's talk about the Russian perspective um, as it relates to this, um, and Natalia also <clears throat> some of the specific uh, interesting examples of, of what you've seen the Russians uh, doing to manipulate this crisis. Thank you, Fred. Um, I will start by saying that Russia's information efforts around COVID have not been merely opportunistic. In fact, they've been supporting a number of longstanding objectives and actually across multiple theaters. What we're watching are primarily about three main categories or directions of the Kremlin's information efforts around COVID. The first bucket is directed at the US and the West. Um, already in mid-January, the US State Department reported that Russian bot networks and proxy media have been spreading conspiracies that it's the US that behind COVID. Uh, Russian media has been also amplifying narratives about racism that's emerging in the West around COVID. More recently, however, um, we're seeing the Kremlin trying to frame the US and the West generally as inhumane for keeping the sanctions uh, during pandemic in various countries. Now, this is a part of a much larger effort um, that Putin launched uh, early March to lift sanctions using the excuse of COVID, not just on Russia, but also on its partners, Iran, um, Syria, et cetera. Now, it's important to know that it's actually not all criticism and not all anti-Western narrative. In fact, we see Putin increasingly reaching out to the West. Russian Ministry of Defense delivered aid to the US, Italy, uh, several Balkan countries, despite fa facing shortages at home. Putin is also trying to engage members of the United uh, Nations Security Council. NATO, um, in fact, actually reported early April that some of Russian disinformation around COVID has gone down. Now, in my assessment, it's happening um, for a couple of reasons. One of them is because pressures of COVID and oil are actually uh, starting to reveal some of Putin's weaknesses. So he's trying to play the humanitarian act actor and good Samaritan um, as he actually cannot afford any additional sanctions right now and trying to get rid of the, the new one, uh, the existing ones. What I will mention is that the fact that Putin is reaching out and overt disinformation might have gone down doesn't mean it's less of a problem for the West. In fact, it means that the information shifted and transformed to support a high level objectives such as sanctions removal. I will also add that anti-Western disinformation still uh, persists, but Russia is now targeting different theories with it. For example, that's a fascinating narrative that Russian networks are promoting in Ukraine that it's actually CIA-run biological laboratories that have invented COVID. So it's the same narrative, but it's used in different theater for different purpose. In this case, creating negative sentiment against the United States within Ukraine. Which um, brings me to the second bucket of Russia's disinformation around COVID which is focused on uh, Russia's primary campaign, such as uh, Ukraine. In March, we assess at the ISW that Kremlin actors launched a very sophisticated and highly coordinated campaign 
um, in Ukraine that my colleague George Barris um, wrote a great piece on. The campaign was aimed to fuel protests uh, against Ukrainian evacuees coming back from China. Now, the reason it really matters uh, for the US and, and most important thing about that campaign was that it actually generated kinetic effects, meaning fighting and physical world. So how do Russians do that? We've seen um, in a matter of just few days, a um, set of viral texts sent to people all across Ukraine with fake information uh, saying that infected COVID, COVID infected evacuees are coming to their towns and openly calling for protests. The email accounts of Ukrainian health ministry were hacked and thousands of emails gone out also with fake information to fuel fear. And as a result, um, there was a protest, in fact, and it created huge uh, crisis management requirements and damage control requirements for the Ukrainian government. Now, um, these scare and fear-based campaigns, uh, uh, Russia has been using them for ages in Ukraine. What's interesting, I think, is that Russia might be using COVID to also test health-related fear-based campaigns as it continues to evolve its hybrid warfare toolkit and uh, can use these approaches elsewhere. So it's really important to watch that. Final bucket, um, actually it's similar to what Dan and Zag have been talking about in China, that disinformation for Russia also starts at home. Uh, the third effort uh, is actually domestic information control. Putin is facing a number of pressures domestically uh, as both COVID and oil price um, pressures are converging. And his primary objective is to keep uh, control of the narrative. So we've seen uh, Russia suppressing the information domestically, both about COVID rates likely, silencing doctors, empowering um, the main censorship agency to crack down at will. They even felt the need to suppress information coming out of uh, Russia-occupied uh, territories in DNR LNR in Ukraine about true COVID rates to the point where they blocked Ukrainian websites that were, um, they were uh, sharing the information about the situation in those regions. Interestingly, Putin is also now faced with the challenge of suppressing some of the online protests. Now, we assess that at this point, he has a very strong control over domestic information space and is in no immediate danger of losing it. However, uh, if situation protracts, the requirement for him to maintain that control will become increasingly costly. So these are just uh, some of the key directions of the information efforts that we're observing, and I would be happy to elaborate on any of them um, and take additional questions. Thank you, Natalia. So we have a number of questions, and I'll start with uh, one that um, leads into something we promised in the uh, advertisement for this uh, presentation, which is a discussion about what uh, people can do about all of this. Uh, Corey Shockey, AEI's Vice President of Foreign and Defense Policy, says one particularly pernicious factor in China's disinformation is the willingness of media in free societies to accept their claims without the kind of investigatory scrutiny they give US sources. Can you suggest ways to redress this? Um, so I'm going to start by making an observation about two factors that I think uh, are really facilitating the uh, effectiveness of Russian and Chinese and Iranian and other disinformation campaigns within the US. One of them is a fundamental characteristic of the information space um, that I've 
uh, that I've observed, and I'm sure many others have as well. Um, I call it the, the asymmetry of outrage and retraction. Um, and what I, what I mean by that is that when someone makes an outrageous claim, an outrageous assertion, the, the, uh, the virus came from an, an army lab uh, and was planted in China, that uh, outrageous accusation frequently gets a lot of play to begin with. And then as uh, the truth emerges, as corrections come out, responsible media outlets start to print uh, corrections or retractions or various other things. But the corrections and retractions rarely get anything like the attention that the original outrageous claim got. And so as soon as the claim is made, the damage is frequently done. And the ability of uh, free societies to chase after outrageous claims is just inherently limited. And I, I think that's a permanent factor of the information space um, that we're living in. But I think there's a particular factor uh, that is unusual in the time uh, that we're living in, which is that mutual mistrust among Americans and hostility between Americans is so high that people are much more inclined to accept and believe outrageous accusations levied against America because they will assign that America to a group of Americans that they distrust or don't like and therefore have it feed into a narrative of mistrust and, and hostility that's pre-existing. So the rift within our society and the mistrust within our society and the hostility within our society is a factor that our adversaries are absolutely able to play on. So what can we do about that? Well, we can rebuild trust in our society and, and try to reduce the hostility between Americans um, which is a noble aim that I think we really actually do need to work on, but I don't expect to achieve that aim anytime soon. Um, nor do I think we're going to be able to do anything about the asymmetry of outrage and retraction. But I do think that we can increase our efforts um, to investigate and study and expose uh, deliberate disinformation campaigns as my colleagues have been doing. Um, so let me open the floor to them if they'd like to make any other comments about this question or talk specifically about what they think uh, we can do to get after this problem. Sure, maybe I'll just make a couple of comments. I, I think Fred hit it exactly right that, um, you know, what the Russians have typically done, right, is use existing divisions within foreign societies as points for leverage for these false narratives, right? Um, and they've accentuated these divisions. They've made it more difficult for democracies to operate as a result. And so I, I think um, fixing some of those uh, divides is, is the long-term answer. It's not gonna happen quickly and it won't happen entirely, but I think um, the, the degree to which we have uh, points of pressure that are easy to push on, that increases our vulnerability. I would also say, I think we're heading towards a world where we're going to have to make some hard choices about the level of disinformation that we tolerate in our society from foreign state actors, right? Um, why is it that China is allowed to ban Twitter and Facebook in, in China, and yet uh, its foreign ministry is allowed to spread propaganda and flat out disinformation within the United States, right? I think people are gonna start asking hard questions about that. Why is it that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post just got kicked out of China um, and they can't report there? And yet I can read a China Daily insert in those newspapers much of the time when you pick them up on the street. 
Um, so I think overall our, our answer and unfortunately the, the best answer for democracies is just openness and transparency is, is how we succeed. We don't wanna to have to close down. But I think to the extent that uh, Beijing and, and Moscow are unwilling to allow us to uh, have reporters that operate freely in their countries and have our messages penetrate into their systems, we're gonna to have to think hard about whether we want to allow flat out disinformation on, on our networks. Um, I think that's a really tough debate for a lot of reasons, a lot of civil liberty questions and free speech questions. Um, but I definitely think at the end of the day, uh, when the Chinese foreign ministry is pushing a narrative that suggests that the virus came from the United States, which is absolutely untrue, we've got to start asking some hard questions about whether we're going to allow them to continue to do so. I might just add to those excellent comments at two points. So one is the U.S. has not been really in the great power uh, strategic information uh, operations game for a very long time and has lost its muscles um, uh, with uh, respect to to a country as powerful as China. There are, um, it's a different time, obviously, a much more divisive time as, as Fred and Zach pointed to, but there are some very good case studies of, of how we handled this sort of thing with the Soviets, for example, when the Soviets began to spread in, uh, disinformation that the US CIA started the AIDS crisis. Uh, there was something at a very, very high level of the US government, successfully chasing down the sources, working with foreign newspapers as well, to, uh, to trace it back to Soviet propaganda organs. I'm, not, I'm obviously not getting the story fully right. The point is that we absolutely need a new function uh, of the US government um, at a very high level, simply dedicated to, uh, to, to that sort of thing. That, and this gets into my point too, and we don't, we don't have it. We just, we just don't have it. I mean, there are some attempts uh, with the Global Engagement Center and so forth, but we don't have that that sustained level of high level engagement on the information space and disinformation. The second point would be, okay, well, in order to do that, you need some cooperation from the US media, particularly the most respected outlets. And I would say, I mean, this isn't a session on complaining about the US media, but I would say even when I read um, articles about U.S. responses in the New York Times or other places, sometimes the investigations are very good, particularly uh, what your foreign base who can actually get access information on China. But the, the level of sort of unnamed sourcing or no sourcing uh, and, and just um, telling the wrong story about how the U.S. is responding to China has been astonishing, actually. And, and this has nothing to do with disinformation. This has to do with partisan divides, incentives in the media and so forth. The, the, I, I think the media as independent actors needs to call itself into service to the country and say, look, you know, we are the media and we're not an arm of the government, but we are at this point unwittingly uh, uh, adding fuel to the fire on disinformation by not questioning our sources, by, uh, re by treating Chinese-based sources as the same as US-based sources, um, by treating Chinese propaganda videos as the, the same thing as 
uh, as, as things that the Chinese people actually read. Uh, I think a real call to duty by the media is, is extremely important right now and say, look, we're not going to, we're going to continue to tell the truth and we're going to continue to get the truth out of the U.S. government, but we're not going to be unwitting participants in a global disinformation campaign. Yeah, I had a couple of uh, thoughts on, on the Russian disinformation. So essentially, I think there, there are two thoughts. One, recognizing the level, uh, recognizing the objectives of disinformation and then recognizing the methods. On the objectives level, um, first and foremost, it's almost never the goal of Russian disinformation to make people believe in specific lies. Uh, in fact, the goal is often to create and cultivate the conspiratorial thinking within the society. Additionally, um, it's very rarely when Russian disinformation is purely opportunistic and just is, is aimed at creating chaos or exploiting divisions. It's almost always tied to other objectives, in part because Kremlin has very few resources in its toolkit to advance its objectives, and the information is one of them, as we see right now with Russia's efforts to promote sanctions. I think of the level of objectives, um, recognizing them will actually help create collective immunity. And some countries have higher collective immunity to Russian disinformation, in part because media is playing such an important role, but also civil society, um, government, strategic intelligence, the combination of that can create that immunity. I think on the methods level, uh, fake also has a pattern and uh, learning how to recognize over time the particular spin, the particular context um, is actually possible because it's almost never about precise facts. It's almost always about what context Russian media puts them in, what conclusions and logical links it draws for you uh, when it spins it, um, that it, it is possible to build that knowledge base over time and also collective immunity at the methods level as well. Thank you, Natalia. I think all of these comments uh, flow nicely also into a question that Peter Bow asked, um, or a series of questions. Uh, Peter Bow from uh, Dredgewire. Uh, he asked, who are our strongest allies in exposing this problem? Uh, more importantly, who is helping the Russians and Chinese the most or turning a blind eye? What tools do we have to counteract and what policy actions are indicated? I think we've addressed some of those, but um, I, I want to follow up on a couple of points that um, my colleagues have made here. Um, personally, I'm very leery about the notion of standing up a, a US government organization uh, for the purpose of counteracting uh, misinformation or um, uh, deciding what uh, foreign information is allowed to, to come into the US information space, um, largely because I think that, in the, especially in the current environment, it's likely to be ineffective uh, because people are, will take such a jaundiced view of anything now that looks like the US government actually trying to, to control information. Um, I think there's the exception though, and this I'd like to offer to the, um, my colleagues for their thoughts, is uh, along the lines of what Natalia said. Um, we can, the government and or uh, private sector uh, technology firms can harness technologies that are available to trace uh, some of these disinformation campaigns to their sources and to do that very rapidly. And sometimes you can do that and we'll see this pop up as, as a technology company will say, uh, you know, this, there's a bot farm 
that uh, is putting out this, this viral disinformation and we know that or we assess that the Russians are behind that and so forth. Um, but also using the kind of semantic analysis that Natalia is talking about, the, the words fall into patterns, the way modes of argumentation fall into patterns and those patterns can be recognized. And I think to the extent that we can have um, <clears throat> a support from the government and from the private sector simply to trace the messaging back to the originator so that at least we can be saying and flagging, look, here with this information, we're not going to stop the American people from seeing it, but we want you to know this came off of Chinese servers. It falls into the pattern of a Chinese uh, information campaign. It, it appears very much to be Chinese disinformation. So understand that when you take this information in. Um, and I think along those lines, um, to answer the question, who are our most important allies, I have, to, I have to go back to Dan's point and say, the media at the end of the day, the, the professional mainstream media is the most important potential ally. It is also unwittingly, I think, the most important uh, helper of this disinformation at the moment. And I think it is unwitting. In fact, I'm very confident that it is unwitting. Um, and I think a couple of factors <clears throat> are leading to that problem. Dan pointed to some of them. I think the hyperpartisanship that we have going on now is another big part of that because it has made all foreign policy domestic policy. Every foreign policy issue now is a domestic. Russia is a domestic policy issue in the United States. China is a domestic policy issue. The, the, the foreign policy almost doesn't exist as a concept in American political discourse anymore um, because it all revolves around what did Trump say about China? And there are people who will say, well, whatever Trump said about China is true. And other people who say whatever Trump said about China is false. And we'll get into, into an argument about that. The point that I would offer is to say, you, you can say whatever you want to say about what you think about, about the accuracy or validity or reasoning or motivation behind anything that Trump says or anything Biden says, or we can have those discussions. But we need to separate those discussions from the question of the truth of the statement itself. Because just because Trump says it and you're inclined to disbelieve anything he says doesn't mean that it isn't true. And I think that, and the converse is also true. And I think that we have to really work, and the media in particular has to work to avoid seeing everything through the prism of this partisan fight that we're having. And I think that that's going on to some extent. And it's, it's been interesting to me to observe, and I'd love for um, Dan and Zach to talk about this if they'd like, the controversy over whether the, the, the virus originated in a lab or not. And the way in which the media has covered that has oscillated in, in my observation, um, but also gone down some paths that uh, are secondary paths, because I, I feel like that question has gotten confused with the question of whether it was a tailored creation. And that I don't even know to what extent this is deliberate disinformation. Dan, Zach, what, what do you think about this issue and how it's been covered? I'm going to use the chance to say I'm, I'm a little less jaundiced about the U.S. government's uh, ability to, to, to push back against disinformation, and I'll use a case right now. Um, so probably the, the greatest effect, um, the greatest impact on, on having the U.S. media and others look into the, the Wuhan Institute of, of Virology and its biosafety practices 
was a leak of State Department cables from 2018 into a columnist in the Washington Post. That changed the conversation, in my view. And it also got other reporters uh, uh, chasing that story. Of course, it's gotten confused with the question of bioweapons and biodefense and so forth. Um, the, the, the government, uh, the U.S. government didn't stay on top of that story um, uh, either. But uh, it was a deliberate attempt by the U.S. government to, to, to put out information that should be looked at more carefully out there. Uh, and it, it, even in all the divisiveness, it's had an impact. All of us are now trying to figure out, we all know about the Wuhan lab, we all know about its closeness to the Wuhan wet market. Uh, people are looking, at, you know, the media is now chasing the story more than it would have otherwise. So I think there is a role to play as jaundiced as people are about the U.S. government. I think, I think uh, they can continue to play that role. I, I hope in a more systematic fashion, at least help people chase down leads and, 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 and you know, turn information, turn them into, turn them onto information that they otherwise uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have. Um, so, so I think, um, I think that's important. I think obviously, um, the divisiveness of the media and so forth has, has, uh, caused this back and forth about bioweapons, not bioweapons, you know, led into conspiracy theories and, and, and so forth. But, but I think generally speaking, um, a number of independent actors, uh, inside U.S. politics and and um, and then a, a couple of very good investigative reporters uh, have chased the story down uh, to the point where governments, not just in the United States but others, want answers about the safety at this Wuhan lab. Zach, yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me, I, I'm much more focused. I think on the what I think is sort of the, the core problem the Communist Party had in December and January with getting this under control. And, you know, I think people should rightfully be angry with how the virus was controlled and how information was let out. And on that issue, I, I think there's just been some wonderful work done in the media. Um, and in fact, the reporting was so good that the Tom Communist Party decided it couldn't stand it and had to kick American reporters out of China from the Journal and the Post and the Times who'd been doing the reporting. So I, I'm probably, I, I'm pretty happy with a lot of the coverage we've seen recently that sort of uncovers a lot of the mishandling of the early days of the virus. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what happened uh, with the lab and all of that. But I, I think the, the one thing we absolutely do know is that the Communist Party mishandled the virus for at least a month, maybe two. Um, and they weren't open. They didn't let others in to actually investigate what was going on. And through mid-January, uh, we were still being told that there was no human-to-human -human, uh, transmission, which was clearly a lie at that point. Um, and if it wasn't a lie, it's even worse because it suggests that the Communist Party for two months had human-to-human -human transmission and couldn't get that under control for some reason and didn't even know about it. So I guess for me, I, I think the, the main allies here are um, the broadcast media, as you've been saying, uh, those folks doing great reporting. And I would just say, you know, I, I'm a little bit hopeful in this regard, it, because if you look at the places that Beijing has weighed in the most in the last year or two uh, in, in the media space, it's been Hong Kong and Taiwan. And those are the places that Beijing should understand the best. They have large ethnic Chinese populations. They're close to China. Uh, and yet, 
if you actually look at what's happened at the end of the day, both have had elections that have gone strongly against what the Communist Party wanted to happen. And in fact, we've seen some blowback here in the United States as well. Uh, you know, there's some debate about this, but uh, the Chinese ambassador, Sui Tang Kai, came out and basically uh, opposed the kind of disinformation that his own foreign ministry was spreading here. And so I'm, I'm a little bit hopeful that we're going to be able to push back on these kinds of media campaigns. It's not going to stop them. And we know that China will get smarter and more effective in how they use these tools, just like the Russians have. But I, I do think we've already seen a bit of pushback. And I would just cite two, two final things, which is the story uh, in the last 48 hours that leaked to Reuters about how concerned the Communist Party is with the blowback within China. And then another set of stories about how worried they are about the blowback outside of China, I think shows that people are still willing, even though there are huge risks in China, to leak this kind of critical information to Western media. And you know they're playing an absolutely important role about talking about what's going on both inside in China and outside as well. Thank you, Zach. Um, Natalia, I'll, I'll come to you in a moment if you uh, would like to weigh in on this. I want to I want to flag um, a question, and it's a question in my mind. I don't know I don't know what the answer is. Um, when we have states that are expelling American media outlets or Western media outlets because those media outlets are actually reporting the truth, actually trying to report what's going on, but those states continue to purchase uh, access to American media, continue to publish in the American information space uh, with state-owned entities, uh, Sputnik. Um, or Russia Today, um, <clears throat> and so on. Should we try to block access to those outlets in retaliation for having uh, our reporters denied access uh, to, their, uh, to their markets? The concern I have there is, uh, and I will let Natalia start with this if she, if she has a thought, would we risk then advancing an objective of creating a segmented global information environment that would actually facilitate the internal controls of uh, adversaries like Russia and China and, and Iran and so forth by creating an environment in which people are expelling reporters and then other people are blocking access and so forth so that we're just de facto uh, super empowering uh, those who want to control their own information environments, or is this an appropriate tool that we should discuss? I could make a comment. I think one of the dangers in, in the current situation is actually defining down and scoping down the nature of the disinformation just to media and just to actual outlets and social media, etc. In Russia, at least, uh, it's a lot broader than that. The space includes not just um, the media infrastructure that they've created. It also includes all platforms and conferences and organizations that Russia is using globally to, uh, to essentially um, circulate their narratives and, and push their agendas. So I think by uh, going after particular segments of it, you won't necessarily solve the problem and you of course might limit your own freedoms and one of the uh, goals that they actually have is that the us limits their its own freedoms uh, at home so i think uh, it's actually quite dangerous to to define uh, information space down i think it's a uh, conceptual fallacy that would actually lead to wrong policy decisions in the end 
Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week. Thank you.